Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. The first thing that defines Norma Kamali's iconic fashion career is her near-psychic ability for being ahead of the curve. She experimented with tech fabrics in the 70s. She turned the sweatshirt into an everyday garment in the 80s. She was athleisure before that was even a word. She identified early on as a feminist when women rarely ran their own companies. And she was one of the first designers to openly discuss the way your insides affect your outsides. And that internet thing... She was the first designer to have her own eBay store, ever. The second big thing that defines Norma is that she has somehow defied the odds. Norma Kamali is partial to wearing the same outfit every day in an industry that is largely built on youth, trends, and the business of newness. She doesn't advertise or show her collections at Fashion Week, and many of her designs are reinvented versions of classic silhouettes and ideas she's been playing with for decades. Her clothing still manages to make it on stage with Beyonce and into the closets and suitcases of everyone from Lady Gaga to Yoko Ono. Having just received the CFDA Jeffrey Bean Lifetime Achievement Award this year, Norma Kamali is a bona fide legend. But she is also living proof that age or trendiness is not synonymous with achievement or success. At 71, she is more successful, more interesting, more in-demand and vibrant than ever. She has a rare brand of cool that is defined by reinvention. And it's safe to say, I want to be just like her when I grow up. Good morning, Norma. Good morning. It's so good to see you. You too. I'm sorry you're feeling a little sicky in the head. I'm fine. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Good. Well, you look beautiful. Uh, (laughs) That's right. Give it a nice, sexy pause. So congratulations on the recent CFDA Jeffrey Bean Lifetime Achievement Award. Thank you very much. It was so amazing to see you and just how extraordinarily beautiful and sexy and confident. And it's just, I don't know how you do it, but in terms of just reinventing yourself chapter after chapter. Let's talk a little bit about the beginning, you know, just where, where Norma came from. I grew up in a house with a very eccentric, fantastic mother who was difficult because of her eccentric tendencies, but so talented at the same time that the influence was profound and definitely made a lifetime impression. I think that more than anything had the biggest impact on everything I do, even today. And had she been born at another time, she would have been hugely successful because she was also very smart with money, financially very adept at managing money, managing savings, and she was very impressive. So how did you make the leap then to sewing yourself and design? Because you were doing it really early on. When I was 16, I used to sneak out and go dancing in places where 16-year-olds weren't allowed, but I managed to get myself in. In New York. In New York, and I would sew myself into my pants 
because I didn't know how to put a zipper in a pant. So I would just have a needle and thread. And if I went to the ladies' room, I'd have a seam ripper and a needle and thread so I could sew myself back into my pants because they were very fitted and there was no stretch fabric at the time. Have you ever told that story before? I haven't, and I can't believe I'm just telling you now. That is, (laughs) first of all, it's dangerous to have a needle and thread in your pocket at a club (laughs) and dancing, but that just... And you weren't, did you, were you drinking? I mean, I can no, only imagine. No, I never, I, no, yeah, okay. it was totally sober. There was a place called the Peppermint Lounge, which I, I'm sure nobody that will hear this knows about, but it was the the place where it was before disco and and my girlfriend's father, sort of mafia maybe, owned the place and we would sneak in there and dance in between these great shows they had. And we'd have our hair teased up like three miles high. And you were wearing pants. No one was probably wearing and pants no, then. No, no. Then it was early 60s. And so oh. they were very skinny pants. and Like pedal pushers. Yep, they were. But they weren't tight enough for you. You had to make your own. They were totally perfectly fitted. And made for you. <laughs> your first custom Norma Kamali yes. pieces. Except for the zipper. So hard, the zipper. I couldn't manage that at all. It was really just... You've mastered the zipper now. But also, (laughs) you're also, like, you still use a lot of, like, lacing and and pleating and threading. So you're probably still not so partial to zippers, huh? Well, uh, a lot has happened since Stretch. And, uh, (laughs) yes. And actually... I didn't want to be a designer and never had a desire to to do anything that had to do with clothes because at that same time, it was Mad Men was really popular, the Mad Men silhouette. And I was not good with the matching hat, gloves, shoes, outfit. And it was very much the time. And I was, I was because I was painting all the time, I was always a mess. My hair was all over the place. I always had paint all over me. So I was just not fitting in with the time at all. And then when I I got a scholarship for painting and I got a scholarship to FIT and my mother said, just get the scholarship, go to FIT so you can get a job. Or I'm putting a lock on the refrigerator door so you can participate in paying some of the bills. My mother was harsh, but it was great because... It forced me to make a decision about what what I was going to do. And so my original intention was to be a painter and somehow figure out how to get a job doing something other than typing and being in a sort of the secretarial pool or whatever was available for women at the time. And I graduated from FIT. I had a great portfolio. I think I've told you about my horrible experience with my first job interview. You've told me, but all the listeners out there haven't heard heard it. Well, and I'm sure there are people who will relate to an experience like this. I went into this office in the garment center, and there was a guy with his feet up on his desk eating a tuna sandwich. And this is my first first job interview and I have this huge portfolio thinking it's really great and I can't wait to get a job and he told me to put my portfolio down and come and turn around for him and I just sort of went deaf and this white noise came over me and I thought well what do I do he's the power in the room 
my mother's pressuring me to get this job. And I turned around and I was so humiliated that I did that, that I just gave away my power and, and turned around for this horrible guy. So I picked up my portfolio, ran out hysterically crying and very embarrassed. I haven't told that story until the last couple of years because I'm talking more about objectification and experiences. So I really kept that secret and I decided that I just didn't want to work in the garment industry. I wanted to travel and I saw an ad in the New York Times classified section and there was a job at Northwest Orient Airlines in the office. Now, I have no skills that relate to any office, anything. And I went in and it's a miracle that I got the job because I was just so unqualified. I spent four years in the Northwest Orient offices and decided to be great. I decided to be really competitive with everyone. I had the joy of traveling round trip to London every weekend, $29.00. And I was in London in the most incredible time possible, the mid-60s to the late 60s. And it was just me. I, the first trip, I saw what was going on. It was I just happened to be staying at a boarding house a friend of mine told me about in Chelsea. And there were little pockets of blasts of color like you couldn't see anywhere else in London or anywhere. I can tell you every hair on my body, every, I had just goose pimples and I was so taken and excited that I was bursting with, with joy. And I said, this is me. This is, I'm, I've just found what I'm about. You found your people. I found it completely. And I was able to go every weekend for four years. For $29 each I read that. So the beauty of it. The London commute. Yes. Yes. And the beauty of it was, number one, I was learning office skills. I was learning how to run the things. I became the head of the tour department, which was huge. I learned service. And, and at the time, you could not get better training for sailing or service. And I was working behind a Univac computer in the 60s. So truly, it was so abstract in my mind at the time, but I understood that this computer was telling me things about what was going on on the plane, how one bit of information could transfer to another part of an office or another city where the Northwest offices were. It was just incredible. So I was very, four years of that was just such a comfort zone for me. So anything that had to do with computers thereon was of great interest to me. And I was very grateful for that early experience. So not only did I have a creative experience in finding my place, finding where I should be at the very beginning of of what was going on in London, but I was on a computer and nobody knew what I was talking about when I said it. And I didn't think it was such a big deal because I thought, well, I guess everybody's doing this. I had no, you know, what did I know? I was studying fashion illustration at FIT and painting. 
And there I was in this futuristic kind of environment and not realizing that it wasn't the norm. And looking back now, I mean, it seems even hearing that story, I got some goosebumps too, because obviously you can't see it then when you're in it and it's happening to you. But looking back now, it sounds to me like it was really foreshadowing for you and the foundation that you laid for your own company. You said when you took that job at the airline company, you decided you were going to be great. What does that mean? How do you decide? How does one decide to be great? First of all, the environment was the antithesis of every dream I had. So it was it was cubicles with people sitting behind computers and conveyor belts and just headsets on and just nothing creative at all about it. And I didn't want to reject it. I didn't want to harumph my way through it. I wanted to really accept the fact that this was going to be good for me and I better get the most out of it. I didn't know how much I would get out of it, but I thought, it, and I have a competitive spirit, so I thought, I want to be the best. So how, how do I be the best? What do I do? If they liked oranges, I made sure there were oranges in every room they went into. I would find out about what the color of the drapes were, what kind of bed it was. I was obsessed with the detail of service. Because I was so competitive, I learned from the best that were in the office and there were some amazing talented people that could sell and and service like you'd never imagine from that experience what kind of advice do you have for for women in their 20s that maybe have to feel feel as though they have to take this detour you know how do you actually kind of make that detour a part of the main plan <sighs> you know Christine it's really rough to give that advice now because it's so different. I don't know that if I were young now and starting out that I would have the patience to do that because everything moves so quickly. And most people in their 20s don't stay in jobs. The majority don't stay in jobs a long period of time. They want a lot of shorter experiences or freelance experiences. And there's a reason for that. It's a fast-moving time. It's very different. So the experience I had and the experience you had may not relate today. And the only positive information I could pass on that I think still is relatable is that when you are going from place to place for nine months or six months or however long you decide to stay, to get the feel of that company or the job. I think full immersion is really important. Don't not give 150%. The key is to really just give everything, like really, really give it all. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
so that you get back uh, a ton. And so if it's not four years, I mean, four years is a long time and it served my purpose, but if it is nine months, make sure that experience is so rich and that you've really gotten, you've gave so much. The only way to get anything back is that you have to give more. And I think that's what the misunderstanding is when you're younger is that you just want to get, but you don't get unless you really put a lot into it. That's good advice. I want to make sure we circle back around to the experience that you had in the Garment District. You started a campaign around the time that you and I first met called it Stop Objectification. And um, it really became a a passion pursuit for you in terms of just raising awareness around how women go through life every day dealing with this scrutiny, all unsolicited. Tell me a little bit about what the campaign means to you. The fact that every woman in the world is objectified over and over and over again is really mammoth. They're horrible enough to have an effect on our performance or and uh, our reaching our potential. And nobody has been talking about these experiences. It's like okay to keep it a secret. And it affects our psyche and it affects our behavior and our self-esteem and body image and everything. It really is profound. And it's worldwide. It's a global phenomena that's the biggest secret. And then I started to ask women after meetings or whatever was going on, have any of you ever objectified yourself? Total unanimous, yes, we have. And I believe that it is a unanimous, yes, we have. The result will come about through men. And I think men that are educated, if if a father knows that his daughter had the experience I had, he would be so outraged, so upset, so personally involved in what happened that he then becomes an advocate for women and an advocate for his daughter and will for sure make sure that his son understands the behavior with women and would also make sure that his friends, coworkers, speak to women in a different way. It's not just men doing this to women. Women do it to women. We do it to ourselves. And the fact that we do that tells us a lot about why we need love. Why why do we go to that extreme? Why do we need a diamond ring that's really big to say, look at how much I'm loved. Look at how big my ring is. He loves me more than anything. How... Look at how big the wedding is. Look at how this fantastic celebration of how much I'm loved. And if you think about it, it's really, it's, it's a big part of who we are as women. But the fact that we will allow ourselves to be objectified in the pursuit of that love is really meaningful. So whether women objectify women or we objectify ourselves or men objectify us, The self-esteem issue is huge, and we have to turn that around so that women are reaching potential and not feeling less than and not letting industries like the fashion industry and the beauty industry take advantage of our vulnerable state. And it just gets me 
going in a big way. And a lot of what I'm doing going forward will hopefully help bring awareness to, to all of this conversation. I want to talk about a moment that I had with you. I was texting with you. I was at the the Rose, no, the Pasadena Flea Market in California, and I found a pair of shoes. They were like these grommet um, white pumps, and I, te- I took a picture and I texted it to you. And do you remember what you texted me no, back? No. You said, "Don't so- don't show me that shit. I hate seeing stuff from the past." <laughs> right. You were really <laughs> mad at me. At one point in your life, you were just so tired of having the burden of all of these archives, and you just got rid of it all. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit mm. about that time and just like how it kind of prepared you for these newer chapters that have kind of unfolded for you? Well, I, I think it's important for everybody to take stock of what you what you have and who you are. And so I, one day, I I had the good fortune of buying um, an incredible home and it was the majority of a a fantastic townhouse on the Upper East Side just off Fifth Avenue and I um, restored it. It was part of the Woolworth estate and it was fantastic and I was making furniture at the time. I was making chandeliers at the time and doing all of this stuff and collecting antiques and I had a warehouse full of things that that I just thought were spectacular, beautiful, and they were. And then I had my archives, and that was 20,000 samples, not to mention an enormous amount of shoes and tons of stuff. And I thought about it, and my home was so beautiful, but I felt trapped by the beauty in in the oddest way. Uh, If I wanted to create something new, I was so inspired by everything around me that I couldn't get past the environment and I couldn't get past the beauty of a lot of the things that were part of my life. And so I thought the only way I'm going to have a new idea is I have to get rid of all of this. It It shouldn't be a part of me going forward. And I methodically decided to group by group donate things. And I made a vow that if I ever collected anything again, that if it was a book or anything, if I wasn't using it, then I had to give it away. So since then, any home I've had looks like nobody lives there. It's really like a a blank palette all the time and a canvas that um, I can create on. And I'm inspired in that environment. So wherever we do live, there's a great view of the river or the sky or trees or environment the outside is in and so that's inspiring me to to me because it's nature and it's it's what god created not something that was purchased or made and i 
I'm so happy I did that. It just freed me up completely. And freedom is high on my list. Obviously, having my own company and no partners for all these years means freedom's like top of the list for me. So freedom clearly defines who I am in my career and how I look at everything. Well, speaking of of you, you know, owning and running your own business, you and your first husband divorced. He was your business partner. He was a student and I was working at the airlines and I started to bring in clothes, sell them. It developed into clothing I was making. He was my biggest advocate. He would put prices on things that would embarrass me. I think nobody will pay that money. You just don't know who you are at 19. We reached a point 10 years into the marriage where we really were off on completely different tangents. And I left, and it was the biggest decision of my life. I was leaving everything behind, everything that I had just created as Norma Kamali, the designer. I was 30, and I had $98. There was a lot of prayer of some meditative type um, going on, but I knew that if I didn't leave because the situation was difficult, um, I would just disintegrate and, and I would disappear. It, w- it wouldn't be healthy for me. So I left and I started my company. And it was just such a, it was such a joy to realize that I could have my own company and that I could make this work. I paid everybody back with like my mother with her envelopes. And I would p- put all the money every week, I would pay people back. And 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 then I I had to use on my own as my logo because he stayed in business and Which I is Omo. Was, yeah and so it was on my own Norma Kamali and he was still in business as Kamali and but I see that a lot talking about advice for thirty year old women that is a huge 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 time in every woman's life it's very meaningful and it creates um, the first kind of recognition of who you are and who you're going to be. The good news is you're young enough to, to, to make those harsh decisions and move forward. It's very important not to give in to what's the, the easy solution because you may miss out on a lifetime that could be very exciting and meaningful. So 30 is key. I know a lot of people talk about your age. You're very open about it. I think you really love to advocate for just the the positive side of, of women getting older and not feeling like our value declines as we get older. If you're obsessed with looking young, you're going to be defeated. If you're obsessed with being young, you're going to be defeated. I think the key is about the spirit being the healthiest version of yourself is the most beautiful version. You've been with Marty, your partner, for six years or seven years now. I do think there is a certain wisdom and a certain groundedness that you get from being with someone as you get older and you become more comfortable with yourself. But what's what has it been like living with someone, you know, in in your later years, you know, when you're sort of established and your habits are kind of yours? Yeah. After my first marriage... Um, I, I can't say I ever really envisioned myself married. I, I, for some reason I didn't, I always thought 
that I might someday, um, but I never really had the the urge to get married again. And I realized having my own company, there would be challenges in having relationships because when you're the boss, you're bossy, sort of. I mean, not in the negative sense, but that's the role you have. People feel comforted by you giving direction or having a a goal set or a path. So you're used to that kind of dialogue. And I found myself coming home to relationships through the years where I'd have to switch on a different personality and not speak in the way I normally would speak. So I pretend to not be the boss and to be the opposite, which was just so horrific. So I could never really last that long in a relationship. I would always just call it off sooner or later because I've had enough of this. And I didn't really have a thought about how I was going to work that out because there was this great conflict between my work and having a relationship. I sort of gave up on the soulmate thing because I figured if I don't have a soulmate by 50, I don't think they come after 50. I just don't think there's like a deadline on the soulmate (laughs) thing. And then um, oddly enough, an an ex-boyfriend introduced me to Marty. Ian Schrager. Yeah. So, but at 65, I meet Marty and my life changed completely in that I understood what that meant to have a soulmate where you actually have this deep connection with someone and that it can happen at any age. There is no deadline on soulmates, so... (laughs) Don't give up. They come in all shapes and sizes. Don't give up. And if you are a good, nice person and you know somebody that would be a perfect fit for someone else, I think that's a responsibility we all have. I think that's the best, best way to um, create an opportunity for two people to be together. Norma Kamali, thank you so much for being here on Unstyled. I hope you'll come back again soon. I would love to come back again soon. Thank you very much. I hope you're inspired after hearing Norma Kamali's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be super grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced and edited by Elisa Kreisinger, with production assistance from Rebecca Easley for Refinery29. Copy and research support provided by Leela Brilson. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff. Hannes Brown produced our episode music, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with Amy Saul, on cultural appropriation and preservation.